So welcome to You Talking with Greg. I'm with Professor Scott Jordan. Uh, you're currently chair of the Department of Psychology right, at Illinois State University. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. He's got a long history in embodied cognition, fascinating stuff on eye movements and understanding the world. And then he evolves into wild systems theory. Uh, <laughs> I was on a walk. I don't know what it was, two, three weeks ago. I hear John Verbeke because I tune into my good friend, John Verbeke. And boom, I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's somebody tracking entropy and complexification yeah. across a coherence perspective that gives us, well, meaning itself. And I was right. like, I got to talk to that guy. Uh, so here we are. Scott, welcome so much to the program. Well, Greg, thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here, and um, I look forward to talking to all things Wild Systems. Lovely, lovely. So, you know, I am a clinician, so what I like to do is I like to situate people in kind of their narrative, and developmental narrative. Doesn't mean we need to go all the way back to the beginning, but mm -hmm. I would like to hear a little bit about just kind of how you came uh, to get interested in cognitive science, cognitive psychology, and then evolve into this wild systems view, and then we can riff off of that. Um, sure, I'll start a story and you should uh, feel free to interrupt me at any point. Okay. So, um, so I started college as a freshman wanting to save the world's teenagers. I had yeah. every intent on being a therapist. Uh, after about two or three years, I recognized that I wasn't volunteering for the suicide hotline. I uh -huh. wasn't doing the things that all the other undergraduates who were bound for clinical training were doing. Um, didn't understand why. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I took a course on perception, which is a research undergraduate research course. Sure. And I met Professor Wayne Hirschberger, who who provided the questions that would uh, provide me a career's worth of work. So love. Um, it's at that point that I fell in love with the elegance of the brain. Uh -huh. uh, it's at that point that I fell in love with the philosophy of relational thinking. Uh -huh. uh, at that point in my career, in the guise of ecological psychology, okay. the first real experimentalist in American psychology to introduce relational thinking. And we can talk more about that later. Yep. Um, and honest to God, that, I that should afford us a good opportunity. <laughs> Thank there you. you go. Week. Oh, you're absolutely right. I, yeah. Um, and then um, I worked with Wayne, my master's and PhD. And um, at the and at the time I was working with Wayne, there were two things that were forefront in my philosophical thinking. Okay. Um, and that was anti-representation. So anti-computationalism in descriptions mm -hmm. of cognition. Uh, and then... Um, which was consistent with the ecological perspective. Right. And and then looking at what it is that organisms actually control, right. i.e., what is it that organisms keep stable? Yep. And if we're gonna use a computational framework with the idea of input computation output, it turns out that organisms aren't controlling their output from that framework. What William Powers taught us is that they're controlling their input. And then what Will Power Bill Powers did so elegantly will show us how you can generate a system that is basically a nesting of input control systems. And so I actually got to go to these conferences over the border in Wisconsin once a year with William Powers and a whole bunch no of people way. who were doing control systems, Rick Markin, I mean, uh, the whole crew. The whole and life, oh man, that's great. That's really and cool. They were just such enriched. And it's in that space that I kind of grew as a, as a, as a uh, 
as a scholar, I mean, all yep. of us go through some level of um, um, uh, imposter syndrome. Yep. And I could see myself over the years, I could see them gaining respect for my insight and, yep. and I could feel myself becoming part of a community of intellectuals and it, it completely mattered. Um, and so when Actually, I moved, let me pause you there for just please. a sec, because this is a very rich thing. Okay, so um, light bulbs explode when I discover perceptual control theory. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so just so folks are aware, all right, of what do we mean by perceptual control theory? You have the standard behavioral view from the outside, the environment's controlling you, and mm. if we take a Skinnerian view, it's yeah. basically you're an operant, uh, operator, engaging an operant, and then it's the flow of resources that pull you into the selection of behavior. Yeah. Uh, right. And so we can then track the actual control through the environment. Okay. Yeah. And then what you really thought about it, this has always annoyed me, it's actually, you know, all the <laughs> calories are actually coming from the effing organism, okay? Yeah. Like the energy, work energy is not coming really from the environment. The, right. What the organism is doing is tracking forms and then pulling those forms and then investing. Yeah. Right. And then how does it actually do that? Well, actually what it's trying to do is it's trying to create a particular perceptual set, okay? Um, mm -hmm. Meaning that it's sort of like, and here's, I'll just give you a simple example. So let's say you want to fry an egg. Okay. Um, the argument basically is, hey, where are you? Okay. Uh, what does a fried egg look like? What are the steps that afford you uh, to move in that direction? And then how do you bring your perceptions online with those steps, essentially? Uh, and then, and actually folks to know when you talk, the entire experiential system is organized by what I call the PME relation, which is basically perception, which is to organize the inputs into a schematic m which is what's your reference goal state in relationship to that and e is energized motion uh yeah. that maintains that particular relation so uh powers perceptual control theory sits uh, uh integrated into the whole you talk structure pretty deeply and it was revolutionary for me because i was trying to figure out this behavioral cognitive move and perceptual right. control theory does a beautiful thing in relation yeah well that's all that's all very well said i i wrote a paper some years back um defining the the use of the concept control throughout American experimental psychology and what I came to is that um, by the way I have no real beef with uh, behaviorism um, uh, practically neither uh, do I <laughs> philosophically I find it just kind of bankrupt in the end um, because what Skinner was doing was using the notion of causality in an efficient cause sort of way. Exactly. Right. Two particles mm -hmm. bouncing into each other and imparting force on each other. And scientifically, that's about the best we could do when he was doing his writing. So, you know, to ride that horse into philosophy is just something psychology does all the time. And I'm going to argue it doesn't do a good job of it. Um, and even though I do have a signed letter from B.F. Skinner. Uh, as a naive undergraduate, I invited cool. no, him I, to come yeah. give a talk at my university. And I think he wrote something like, Dear Mr. Jordan, I'm so touched by your very kind information, your very kind invitation. Unfortunately, I find it so highly reinforcing to stay at my desk <laughs> and finish my work that I'm going Love to it. have to decline. <laughs> I mean, I have it in a frame. And so there, I love the man's tenacity. I, I oh. love the way he pushed experimental psychology to, to reconsider itself. At the same time, um, the problem with Walden, too, is that no one shows up unless they want to. Mm. And so, yeah, I will say this is, to be honest, this is a, a great place to, to talk. 
there is thing there are things and this and powers pointed this out actually with data there are things that the, the behaviors got exactly right and that is if i am a functioning control system you should find a perfect correlation between my muscle movements and environmental perturbation yep and those are the stimulus response laws discovered by the behaviorists totally. um the problem is those laws only work in situations where you can control an organism's environment and of course that was skinner's big thing control the environment you'll control behavior um okay that's pretty despotic right i mean that that's not what we do to most human beings there are some who are diagnosed in certain ways that we do control their environment to try to manage certain behaviors out of them but uh um it's just insufficient for the complexity of the human condition um so perceptual control theory was like like you said boom explosions for me because what it allowed it gave the organism efficacy in ways that behaviorism had purposefully denied it which is kind of ironic right i'm going to yep. intentionally deny I'm it going to intentionally deny the intention <laughs> <laughs> recursively feed back into the loop oh lord have mercy <laughs> exactly the thing is when i when i when i when i wasn't working when i left graduate school um i was left with relational thinking and then um this idea that organisms control their input mm -hmm. and our oh, anti-representationalist control of input yet right. powers those are representationalist yeah right powers had no problem with servo mechanistic accounts and i have no problem with servo, me servo mechanistic accounts uh what we often get wrong, what we get backwards as psychologists, and again, this was pointed out by Powers, is that organisms were the model for engineers in World War II. They tried to create systems that could generate stable states in the environment by organizing themselves in certain ways, right? right. Huh. Um, so they created whatever concepts they needed to to create such a system. They called it mm -hmm. input, output, reference signal, and such. Yep and when we adopted the computer metaphor we basically adopted that line of thinking hook line and sinker yep. but we kept that behaviorist idea in there that what we're controlling is behavior and then who's right. controlling it the environment and so one of the things we missed and then this is something that i've pointed out in papers um in the 50s and the 40s when we started realizing that we could actually pre-tune our experiences mm -hmm. instead of calling you know you can hear your name at a cocktail party before you know we could pre-tune our experiences instead of calling that pre-tuned perception mm -hmm. or intentional perception mm -hmm. we called it attention mm -hmm. right so intention got thrown mm -hmm. over to the motor output side of our mm -hmm. servo mechanistic loop and attention got put over mm -hmm. into the perceptual side and this is something i've sort of been writing I don't want to say against, but trying to reformulate for about 20 years, uh -huh. uh, because uh -huh. if we have followed powers thinking clearly, then what organisms do is control their experiences. Uh -huh. Right. And so life uh -huh. is the control of experience. Mm. And this is just not a way we're used to talking. Right. Right. Uh, right. Uh -huh. So, so those mm. words, that rhetoric, that's kind of what I, I had in mind. And, um, I, so I kept working at ways to rectify this idea of controlling input, which was a fairly servo mechanistic idea uh -huh, uh -huh. with this with this um, ecological notion that perception is a relational property between organism and the environment. And uh -huh. um, 
What I had to do Lovely. was find a way <laughs> to come up with a relational control system. How's it going to work? And then I realized yep. what I'm doing is just banging rhetorics against each other. Mm. And uh, to the point where I created a bizarre, well, then I came across complex systems theory, right? Okay. I read Gleick's yep. yep. book. Ah, okay. Uh, okay. What's that? Farmer, Packfield, Crutcher, Crutchfield and Shaw, or whatever. You know, I read all those papers. Right, right. Started actually doing a little bit of data, collecting reaction times, looking for chaotic attractors and moment uh, trial to trial changes in reaction time. I did find some interesting stuff, never published it. Uh, okay. Interesting. But um, you get, you see massive changes in the orders of magnitude in reaction times uh, with children diagnosed with ADHD when they're on medication versus when they're off. Uh -huh. So, for example, even though their mean reaction time might come more into the normal range when uh -huh. they're on medication, the trial-to-trial -trial variability is uh, is uh, is not complex. Hmm. It's not complex like it would be in what we would call a non-diagnosed or healthy cognitive system. Interesting. Um, so something's being dampened in uh -huh. these systems with the medication. <clears throat> it's keeping their behavior in a certain space, and what that's doing is decreasing the... I would argue in a wild system like this, you have multiple mm -hmm. scales of interacting dynamics that are allowed to constrain each other according to the magnitude of their scale. That's mm -hmm. what, you know, white, mm -hmm. that's what pink noise, pink noise is. That's what a, a healthy system is. Mm -hmm. And if you get something in one of these systems where at one level, it's not able to cooperate with the others, for example, a clump in an artery or those mm -hmm. sort of things, mm -hmm. uh, you see a decrease in the complexity of the, of the time series. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, never published it, but I did it. And I'm like, okay, yeah. hmm. how do I do this with, you know, input control systems that are relational? Mm -hmm. Developed uh, this idea called self-organizing information pockets. Okay. Um, trying to look. <laughs> and that just that just didn't work, right? And, and I, for myself, what ended up having to go was the concept of information. Yeah, I saw that. And the reason that had to go is because in the computational model, you get meaning for free mm -hmm. because the bit has causal properties. That's why we use the word. Yep. And then we just say it is transferring information, right? Yeah. Like in yeah. a computer. So the meaning just kind of lays on top of the causality. And then, you know, very smart philosophers come by and tell us that this is philosophically bankrupt, yep. that there's, you know, you can have, it's logically possible to have a completely causal system with no information no meaning, no phenomenology writing on the carrier wave. And I I agree, right? So for me, someone who cares about the taste of ice cream, who cares about the experience of lived life, I had to find a way to talk about what we are that made the taste of ice cream, that made, made phenomenology consciousness necessary. Right. It couldn't just be, well, the causality, the physical is right. first, and then we got to squeeze yep. this into it. And what I started doing was actually attacking the notion of, of the distinction between objective and subjective properties. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And probably in about 2015, um, I, I, I had a I had a bit of a breakthrough that spanned like a hundred years of uh, different scholars. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. Again, tell me to stop whenever you want. No, no. Um, well, I mean, this is, uh, let me say, okay, so there are a lot of possible things for us to come back to, okay? Mm -hmm. Because the way in which you're construing these relations, the way in which John construes these relations, John Berbeke, yeah, the way in which I construed these relations, traveling, we're really traveling up very similar mountains, but oh, yeah. we're grabbing a hold of different kinds of elements. So 
you know, behavioral investment theory emerges for me essentially to manage very similar dynamics that you're talking about here. Yes. Uh, so we'll come back to that. And that then lines up with John's recursive relevance realization. And I'm sensing very yeah. strongly it's lining up with uh, what's becoming wild system. So I'm listening to this being, oh, okay, that's how yeah. you, uh, you know, that's how you climb that little mountain and you dealt with that and you're moving along there. So I'm just enjoying that. It's maybe a little abstract for some folks if you know the background, but I want to get into this in terms of, uh, so I'll just, that's my little yeah. asterisk as I'm enjoying the. Well, the, the thing is, but there's an incredible amount of joy that comes to academic life when you come across kindred spirits who have arrived at a very similar location from very different distant, de oh. very different starting points, right? <laughs> Gives life and meaning. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see the rhetorical maneuvers we have made <laughs> to make our way up this space. Totally. And uh, I'm, I honestly am very optimistic. I do think the 21st century is a century of holism. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think these kind of efforts are what are pushing uh, not just psychology, but scholarship in general, because uh, psychology's reliance on physical, mental uh, dialectics or subjective, objective dichotomies, that just that comes from imitating classical physics, totally. right? It, and even though, you know, we had in the late eight, mid to late 1800s, there were fantastic field-oriented psychologists in Germany and the continent. Helmholtz, somebody get me Helmholtz on the line. Exactly, <laughs> who were trying to say relational type things and actually talk more in terms of field theory, which is a relational concept. Um, the... Okay, so I interrupted you. So you're at 2015. You're, you're oh, spanning yeah. 100 years of... Uh, yeah, so Bert, so so in the mid-1800s in Europe, uh, there was a massive struggle going on. It had been going on for centuries between science or you know, what do we call natural science or natural philosophy and religion. And, um, you know, Galileo got grounded for the rest of his life in his bedroom because he wrote a letter to the Pope saying that natural philosophers should have authority over the material realm and the church should have authority over the spiritual realm and the church refused to give up its power. Mm -hmm. So there really is power at stake in terms of who has the say on what's true in our rhetoric about reality. And so at the time that natural philosophy was moving along the lines of John Locke and the idea of a physical world that uh -huh. gives rise to subjective impressions. And uh -huh. you have David Hume come along, and this is this is important, who reveals the logical incoherence of uh -huh. such correspondence ways of thinking about how we relate yep. to something outside of ourselves. Uh -huh. um, I think we can see a huge bifurcation in, in Western philosophy at that point. Yep. You see, you know, usually it's said, people say it starts with Kant, who said, you know, Hume woke him up from his slumber, dogmatic slumbers. He starts moving in a way that almost gets there, but still gets stuck with something like a noumena, right? Yep. And then you see other people moving to Hegel, and then my yep. favorite philosopher, a guy named Michael Okashot. Um, uh, from I heard you, I think you mentioned him on John's program. I don't, I don't know. No, he, he the dude blew my mind, man. I, okay. I read, I found a book about him in 2001 at one of the Tucson conferences. It's called The Skeptical Idealist. And, uh, um, um, what, what Oakshot did was take 
the, and I hate the word idealist, I'm going to call them coherence philosophers because calling them idealist philosophers is not a name they came up with. Right. Uh, so other people labeled them that, and it's a very unfortunate name. I'm going to call them coherence philosophers. And what I mean by this is that they refuse to start a conversation about reality in terms of how it differs from experience. Ah. So they were refusing to define reality in a dialectical relationship Love with that. experience, which is exactly what Locke does, which right, is exactly what contemporary information processing theory does, mm -hmm. right? There's an epistemic gap between organism and environment, and I have yep. to find a way to cross it. So I use my yep. sensory systems and my brain. And um, um, that is simply a logically coherent assertion. What that means is if I claim that I know something to be outside of me because mm -hmm. of the impressions it causes within me, mm -hmm. all I have access to are those internal impressions. Mm -hmm. And no matter what I can do, I can never escape them. People say, well, can't you kick a rock? Well, yeah, right. But all you're doing is knowing the rock through internal representation. So it's, it's logically incoherent. You can't know what's outside of you that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so guys like Kant, Hegel, and then Inuyokusha tried to create ways of talking about reality that didn't define it dialectically against experience. And they talked in ways that scientists couldn't stand. Mm. They just couldn't stand. Plus the epistemic gap of objective and subjective properties provided science a way to have the same kind of authority over culture uh -huh. that the church did. And that is, okay, I'm not an internal soul. I'm just an internal mind. Yep. And I still know what's outside of me by this correspondence relation that Descartes made famous and others as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, so let me pause you here. because yeah. uh, So just for people, people that know you talk, know that I situate you talk in relation to what I call the enlightenment gap. Mm. Okay? So the enlightenment gap is as modern natural empirical science emerges, Sometimes I arrange that as men's knowledge, and I play off of that as wisdom-oriented knowledge we need for women's knowledge. But anyway, right. modern empirical natural science emerges with its third-person objectivist epistemic structure, yeah. okay, splits a third-person uh, quantitative behavioral structure from a first-person qualitative structure. Yes. And as a function of that and its ontology, it essentially breaks our coherent capacity to put matter in relationship to mind. Okay, so we get a mind-body problem, and yes. we also get confusion about how to specify what is scientific knowledge relative to subjective and socially constructed knowledge, yeah. which then comes back to a postmodern critique on modernity. So you exactly. see a mind-body problem and a modernist-postmodernist <laughs> problem emerging out of the gap of understanding that, you know, an incoherent gap of understanding that you are basically delineating with a lot of specificity here. Well, I think you just dropped the mic on that issue, right? Because it's exactly the case is it's all a symptom of a rhetoric. It's not an ontological problem. And not only that, as people continue to buy into the subject of objective divide and they put things like the self or things like conscious will on one axis of that divide, and then they start looking at what exists there scientifically and they see brains and they can't find a self, they can't find conscious will, they actually believe that means that those things don't exist. And the problem with that is it's just philosophically sophomoric. I mean, yeah. it's 
they don't understand that they're you know they're they're creating category mistakes trying to bring two rhetorics together as if one is ontologically transparent and one is subjectively mishmashed totally and um this this has gotten to the point where it's dangerous right because the minute we can distinguish between a reality of suffering and a reality of non-suffering for the for for religion the reality of non at least western christianity the sure the 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 realm of non-suffering is not this one it's a it's a, an eternal place outside of contingency right yeah yep. um um but now we're talking about trapping ourselves in bits and escape you know kind of escaping contingency that way and it's kind of like this promissory note that realism took out, right? Mm -hmm. Realism, the idea that uh, that which is real is that which is not experience, right? Yeah. I mean, we know that, you know, um, that promissory note, uh, nothing supports it. Every scientific finding, you know, particularly quantum physics, right? All of this stuff just completely deconstructs the idea of an epistemic gap and then we're forced to look at we're not forced to look at reality differently because um there's no selective pressure on psych experimental psychologists to have a coherent philosophy right <laughs> actually the... actually i'm gonna asterisk that there is an epistemic process to be incoherent quite frankly okay so i'm not gonna actually i'm gonna pause on this because this is part of my beef all right so i here yeah. you know correct me if i'm wrong but no, basically I, this is my point yeah. Uh, one of the points about you talk as out from the enlightenment gap springs ultimately what I call the problem of psychology. Okay. Yeah. So the problem of psychology gets identified very nicely by Lev Vygotsky in 1927 as the crisis. And he lays yeah. it out. It's like, you know, guys, all these schools of thought, they're talking about completely different subject matters. And yeah. even a layperson can tell you that. So you yeah. don't know what you mean by psychology. So then psychologists said, well, gosh, you know, that's true. What we'll do is we'll adopt the methods of behavioral science yeah and then we'll call ourselves scientists not because we have a coherent ideology but we, because we commit to the behavioral science methodology which by the yeah. way grounds you in an epistemology that forces a subject object split just like yeah. you said yeah as we try to understand what the hell the psyche is which by the way includes subjective experience <laughs> and now we're going to basically say well you cannot solve this problem you cannot have a coherent psychology read any book yeah. well some people want to but you really can't best you can do is apply the methods of, of science yeah. ergo all these theorists out there who you know the four of us that are actually talking big picture stuff you know don't worry about them go out there develop a research paradigm and contribute right. your slice of knowledge through the methods of science to this thing we call mind all right so there's my bitch and it's like listen folks if we invert this thing you can get a coherent science actually coherent ontological knowledge is really something science wants yeah <laughs> so well, there's my little rant on the problem of psychology no that's okay i mean i've uh in order to in order to bring wild systems to the fore and actually get it published examine what i can do with it and publish it and publish it teach it to students talk about it at conferences i've just had to i just carry myself as if my worldview is a personal opinion mm. now while i'm talking to myself i know that i'm maximally coherent compared to the other stuff that's out there but since maximum coherence is not a truth constraint in correspondence uh i don't i don't qualify uh for consideration 
Um, here's the thing, though. All right, hold on. I got to pause again. I'm sorry to keep it. I mean, in those circles is what I meant, man. Yeah, no, but let's help folks understand. Okay, so there are different epistemologies, frameworks for knowing, like foundationalism. Rene Descartes tries foundationalism. Science emerges primarily as a correspondent theory of truth. It builds representational models that experimentally test them and then reference those against that. There are also coherentist approaches to truth. A coherentist approach looks at the internal validity and then maximizes the correspondence at the gestalt level and looks for holistic comprehensive elements. So I unified is a pull off of E.O. Wilson's consilience, okay, mm. where he is hunting for a naturalistic approach. Now I think he fails because mm. he actually doesn't get mind right and doesn't solve the enlightenment mm-hmm. gap and he doesn't solve the problem of psychology. Utah comes in, tweaks E.O. Wilson, bridges it to wisdom traditions and then says hey we actually can achieve a consilient coherent big picture view of knowledge that interrelates properly construed subjective objective and intersubjective uh epistemological frames and it'll never be done so there'll never be an answer so right there There will just be (laughs) the coherence we're capable of generating uh at that time and in that context and the problem with that view is it doesn't buy you power Right. And that was really what was at stake for Bertrand Russell in the turn of the 20th century was, damn, I've no, we can't have these this German highfalutin philosophy that no one's going to understand and care about that. We can't have that be for science. Science has to be mathematics. Science has to be set theory. Right. And so 1911 paper by Bertrand Russell, he does a lot to deconstruct. um, Well, he deconstructs the notion of relation uh, of, of, of internal relations, right? So, the idea of internal relations is that you have uh, you have phenomenon A and you have phenomenon B. Mm-hmm. The idea of internal relations is that the relations between A and B are actually constituent of what A and B are. Mm-hmm. So, the reason that what we call, what I would call coherence philosophers, others would call idealist philosophers, the reason they sort of talk this way is because the correspondence model rips the object and the subject apart. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we talk about the fact that I'm sitting here, I'm having a world of experience right now where I say words like, I am seeing my computer. So my language entails what looks like an obvious commitment to correspondence because I'm making declarations about this and I'm making declarations about that. Now, see the folks, they didn't give jack about correspondence versus course when they developed the language, I'm looking at my computer, uh-huh. right? It's us who take that language and then try to go hyperanalytic on it. And that's what we do. And that's fine. <laughs> It's a chronic condition. Oh, well, yes. And, you know, it took me a long time as a blue collar kid to to understand or at least generate a narrative of the value of my way of being. Mm. Right. Um, And as I look around the world, it's clear that the world doesn't need a whole bunch of us. Mm. (laughs) Right. because if, if everybody were doing what we do, things wouldn't get done, right? <laughs> so uh, the, it looks to me like the the, emerge, the the evolution of culture has sort of selected the emergence of groups that predominantly, predominantly 
where most members manipulate context directly <laughs> and, and then a small group of members do the kind of stuff we do. I'm not at all trying to be elitist here. I mean, Plato nope. was straight up elitist about it, right? right, right uh, so. With the philosopher king. But, you know, someone had to figure out how to get that fire from one camp to the next. And it's, you know, someone had to drink that green water first and, you know, all these things. So it took me a while to recognize that's my role. Right. And then when I was able to start to develop wild systems, and I'll explain a little fully as we go through, as I was able to get it to the point where I could describe a fully relational ontology mm -hmm. that allowed me to transcend subjective objective divides and tell my students, you are embodiments of context, you yeah. are meaning. The issue in your life is not to find it, but to manage it. Mm. Um, they suddenly felt seen, right? They suddenly heard psychology talking them to them in a way that was coherent with lived life. Right. And uh, that was always the gig, you know. How do, how do I uh, how do I talk about reality in ways? Actually, that yeah, let's pause on that. I really like that. I think you heard you say that to John, maybe, but I, I and I heard it. I want to sink in it again. Okay, it's not about finding meaning, right? It's about managing. Managing because we are meaning. Because meaning, meaning is essentially a given. Meaning is well. If we how, think, or, yeah, if we think of ourselves, for example, if we look at the structural dynamics of a lion, right? Mm -hmm. We can look at the visuals. We can look at it as a lion as a multi-scale embodiment of the constraints that have to be addressed to capture a zebra. Uh -huh. So the muscles, mm. the brain the entire architecture, the way the visual system works, right, mm -hmm. is every level, level of it is a representation to reality of that system's phylogenetic history, wow. right? So therefore, there's no point in which there's any epistemic gap. There's no point in which right. there's something in that system that is not about, right? right? So if the system is for me, I can say it's made, it's a physical system. I prefer to say it is an embodiment of context. And by using that word context, yep. I don't make any divides because what's outside of the system but context, nice. the most ontologically neutral term I can yep. come up with. Um, and then if I call us embodiments of context and it makes sense to people, that means that we're embodied aboutness uh -huh. and therefore we are meaning. There is nothing about us that is not meaning. Mm -hmm. And so therefore we don't find meaning. We, mm -hmm. we, we, we manage it. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason this is important to me, because this completely changes the argument um, on morality, completely changes the argument on values in a direction that's actually maximally coherent with the founding principles of democracy. Yeah. Democracy mm. never had anything to do with doing sort of any sort of abstract right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It basically legally afforded it afforded me the opportunity to try to persuade others to want the same thing I do. Mm. And um, mm. I have huge respect for the for the emergence of that way of organizing people into into the world. Now, of course, it was based on racist principles and land stolen from others. And we, we, you know, the idea of a perfect union bugs the crap out of me. We're just going to work to make our world maximally coherent. So if we admit that someone's a human being, all of the constraints on how we behave with human beings 
is given to all. Uh Uh, I think that's the best we can do. And Uh from that space, I think emerges mutual self-respect, which has nothing to do with with right and wrong. So um, Uh anyway. Interesting. Yeah, no, that'd be... uh interesting foray into axiology and where, oh, where that's taking you but let's uh let's say actually there yeah, let's blend ourselves toward wild systems theory so we can yeah. give folks a framing for, i mean that's where we're headed so yeah, let's make cool. sure we maintain that because that's a, a no you're major right feature well this all takes you know it all started with the birch and russell thing right 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 birch okay. and russell um has to distinguish has to challenge this idealist notion of internal relations because they were arguing that subjects emerge objects emerge within subjects mm-hmm. so that there is no epistemic gap that didn't seem to grant science the authority it needed so Bertrand Russell made a strong case for what would be called external mm-hmm. relations mm-hmm. his famous <laughs> example is Sam and Mary mm-hmm. and their relative height mm-hmm. so Sam is taller than Mary and what Bertrand Russell argued is that that difference in their height is a relation between them that is in no way constitutive of the two of them. Mm. So the fact that Mary's shorter than than Sam has nothing to do with who Mary is. And the okay. fact that Sam's taller has nothing to do with who he is. So therefore, that relationship is external to them. And... You can only maintain, I mean, Bertrand Russell worked hard to the point where it took over American philosophy in the 20th century, mm-hmm. right? And external mm-hmm. relations became everything mm-hmm. to the point where the early 21st century, nobody's talking about internal relations. Mm. The only people that were close were the ecological people talking about one level of existence perception mm. as being relational, which right. I would argue would be internal relation. So. Okay. Bertrand worked really hard, and by using external relations as a dominant way of looking at reality, mathematics mm-hmm. and set theory become mm-hmm. the dominant tools of truth. Mm-hmm. And since mm-hmm. you've opted into a correspondence model, the truth that the math and the set theory is giving you is the best. It, it corresponds to reality better than anything else. Right. right? Okay. And and um, mm-hmm. so we're. That's 20th, early 20th century. Now, uh-huh. early 21st century, I'm reading papers and where uh, philosophers of science are critiquing uh, the notion of intrinsic properties. Okay. Right? So the, the, the archetypal intrinsic property is mass, right? Uh-huh. And it's often contrasted dialectically to weight. Yep. So, you know, uh, mass is intrinsic because it belongs to the system itself. Right. It doesn't come to be because of what it's in. Whereas weight is a measurement right. of a mass in a gravity field. So it's relational. Exactly. And, and and so this intrinsic versus relational thing is kind of a 21st century equivalent of external versus internal Fashion. relations. Okay, I haven't made that relation. You know, <laughs> so, and so yeah, we had yeah, swung all, all right. we had swung mm-hmm. all the way to the external relations world which left up with intrinsic things that were externally related and then but a bunch of people started criticizing uh, the notion of uh, intrinsic properties particularly because of the Higgs field Mm. right because it turns out that uh, a particle uh, acquires its inertial mass by moving through the Higgs field Mm -hmm. well what is the Higgs field well, it's a field that permeates all of reality, right? So what's this mean? That means that mass is not intrinsic to the particle. Mass is a relational property. Um, and since the mass is coming to the particle 
through something that exists everywhere, this leads you to the idea that all properties are grounded globally. All wow. properties are grounded relationally. Mm -hmm. And so connecting Birch and Russell's move towards external relations with a contemporary move away from intrinsic properties mm -hmm. really allowed me to, to say, okay, I'm, I'm talking right to the physicists now, right? right. And, right. and I'm, that's, that's how I start to make a case huh. for relational ontology, mm -hmm. which is just a recapitulation of coherence, thinking, and idealism, but in a 21st century framework. So that is so cool. Oh, um, well, thanks, man. Yeah, no, I mean, it really is. I mean, the, the lines of thought that you're trailing, I'm, I'm following these different lines of thought but coming to enormously similar conclusions. Um, I mean, the system that I built uh, emerges basically in this sort of uh, field structure for quantum mechanics that becomes relational quantum mechanics. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, and basically Timothy Eastman recently uh, offered a book based on Whitehead stuff that afforded a particular view, yes. essentially a relational quantum field theory. I was like, yeah, no, that's actually, that's where I'm headed. So listening to, and basically I'm using the term sort of field uh, initially as sort of the largest kind of structure. And then the field is the ultimate context in which entity properties are yep. um, constituted by, and therefore you have to have this sort of metaphysics of field of relation and entity in yeah. uh, in totality. So listening to you, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's pretty much where I was at. And, and the coherence emphasis in relation as being forfeited or undermined and then needing to kind of come back. So yep. those are all some really cool features. Well, so, um, you know, I, I'm loving that. Well, there's a lot, a lot of cultural implications of committing yourself to... Uh, to uh, correspondence way of thinking or intrinsic properties. Um, you combine that with a belief that contingency resides in a spatial temporal material realm and there's some realm of salvation that's non-contingent and you afford the emergence of all kinds of sociopathy, right? You get the emergence of a hyper-individualism um, where systems can believe Oh, I'm intrinsic, dude. This is me. I did this all myself. You stand on a road mm. in the middle of a town and say, see, I got wealthy myself. Hmm. And, you know, I call it the Marlboro Man syndrome, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yes, the Marlboro Man. Dude, how do you know you're such a rugged individual? And right. with no irony at all, he says, what? I know I'm so rugged, such a rugged individual because everybody tells me that I am. <laughs> and, and it doesn't get the irony. And, and that brutal irony is just permeating our culture in ways that are actually deselecting, des deselecting us right now to some extent. So these are not uh, just harmless. Deselecting, de you want to give us a little, uh, that's an interesting turn on phrase, deselecting. Yeah, share, well, uh, the, what the, the, the referring the, to there. The individualistic, I would argue, sociopathic form of individualism that has come to dominate uh, the American economy and therefore the American culture is not going to sustain itself. It is giving rise to conditions that are no longer going to afford its sustainment. Right. Okay. Um, the amount of generate the amount of wealth that has been I won't use the word stolen because then I would get involved in a legal argument and then mm. I would lose because people would say we didn't steal it. We just developed mechanisms on, on Wall Street that allowed us to harvest all this energy <laughs> from other people. Uh -huh. uh, it was never illegal. Um, the in the name of of of, uh, of this individualism, we have been able to pass laws that allow the individual to harvest incredible amounts of wealth and resources 
And um, a lot of the things we're seeing in the past five years um, are showing us that that way of that way of existing um, is being challenged demographically in the next 30, 40 years. Yeah. And um, generationally, I'm optimistic that as younger people become increasingly able to vote, mm-hmm. uh, we, we will see the dynamics of American democracy move more into a more holistic space. Mm-hmm. Um, so deselect means an organism is a system is doing things that create aspects of context that actually no longer afford it the ability to okay. exist. Yeah, that, <laughs> and, that's, um, that's helpful to keep uh, so people are tracking that. Absolutely. Yeah, I got you. So, you know, all that struggle with relational thinking then kind of got converted into uh, wild systems theory when I combined that commitment to relationality with uh, dynamical systems theory. Mm-hmm and followed the lead of guys like Schrodinger, Rorella, a guy named Larry Vandervert, Stuart Kaufman, who started looking at oh, life sure. mm-hmm. as an entropy energy uh, yep. dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then once I combined that with the relational thinking, I was mm-hmm. able to look at, all right, what we are as embodiments of context, self, self-sustaining multi-scale embodiments of context, self-sustaining means, as Stuart Kaufman pointed out, that when chemical A and B interact, if they produce a product AB, that's actually a catalyst for the AB reaction. Mm-hmm. And the AB reaction is self-sustaining. Okay. As long as there's enough A's and B's available in the context, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. system of work. And we know what the reaction means, certain energies are released, right? Mm-hmm. So certain entropy is, is created. Yep. So taking that and then applying that all the way up the hierarchy of living systems, including ourselves from our single neuron to the neural network, to the brain as a whole, to the body and its organs, to the organism in its context, to the creation of culture. All of this is self-sustaining work, meaning at every level, it's an entropy system. And then what this does is move us away from notions of a glorious non-contingent realm, more towards something Eastern, where uh, we are creators and destroyers simultaneously, uh-huh. right? There's no realm of eternal forgiveness or non-contingency. Uh, rather, the best we do is what we do here. Uh-huh. And um, and then virtue, value, meaning, all of that is here, and, and, and we have to suss it out. Uh-huh. And, Did, um, that seems to flow pretty naturally into like Wu Wei and other... Yeah. Tao Te Ching kinds of notions as well. Is that what you are uh, referring Absolutely. to? Absolutely. Yeah, I think we got kindred spirits from centuries ago, right? Mm, I mean, there yeah. are people that came, I would call these coherence frameworks, right? Mm. Uh, these are systems, these are thinkers, systems of rhetoric, systems of being that recognize the destructive, the inherently destructive nature of being. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, 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 it's consistent with what you'll find in indigenous ontologies, uh-huh. right? Um, and where you look at the world you live in as a, a Gaia, as a sort of uh-huh. living system, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then for me, the big value is you never, you never, when you never get to look at yourself clean. You never get to look at yourself as uh-huh. as 
the world's fine. I don't do anything that causes the world any harm. Every time you, even if you eat a bowl of vegetable soup, you just killed a bunch of, you deconstructed a bunch of systems we call plants. Yep. And then we have stupid arguments like, well, plants can't feel, which by the way is not true. Um, uh, you know, plants don't, so we're going to say that I'm not going to eat those things because they can feel. But I'm not going to eat those because they can't. And we get stuck with that because we're in these objective, subjective. We refuse to accept our role as destroyers and generators of suffering. And so we try to create rhetorics for ourselves that deny that we're creators of suffering. We're virtuous. We're good. And and uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll stop there. I think it's pretty. Yeah, dangerous. no, that's a, well, there's a couple. There are two different directions. One thing we could dialogue about. I'd be definitely interested in. Uh, I would. I would say, and see if you say, there are ways in which animals feel that plants probably don't feel. Agreed. Okay. Um, so we'll qualify that. But let, I'm more interested, and that might be an interesting conversation. But no, I'm we can be great. Yeah. Uh, I'm more interested in, well, I'm interested in both. We can go back to that. Like, as where you said you're optimistic, how does the current system evolve? So let's start with the knowledge system rather than society in general, the academy. How are we, those of us that are like, perhaps not to sound elitist, but if there's a particular seeing vision around a need to return to coherence, a need to evolve from the current reductive, you know, science, first enlightenment science kind of notion, it feels to me like I'm connecting with a lot of people that are sort of on the edge of this thing. Yeah. They're seeing it and there's an enormous amount of convergence, which is really exciting. Um, I mean, John and I now have done four different series together on oh, uh, connecting our systems up. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, your recursive relevance realization and my Utah psychology is like, oh, my God, there's a lock and key function here. <laughs> and then I'm listening to other people. It's like, yeah, no, there's a lot of locks and a lot of keys and a lot of opportunity. What are you mm -hmm. seeing in terms of so I'm seeing this, but it's also on the fringe. There's yeah. an enormous amount of institutional inertia. Yeah. Um what are you optimistic about a phase transition into different thinking? How do you see that happening? Are you where are you in that? Um, are you are you wandering out in the in the desert alone? I sometimes no. feel that. So you know, uh, no, that's that's a, a really good question, and it, uh, it 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 matters in terms of how I've organized my life the past five seven years or whatever. Culture never gave up on meaning, mm -hmm. right? right? And. Uh, Culture's been writing novels, comic books, making movies forever. Yep. Science and philosophy, we're the ones that have painted ourselves into a corner mm. that has become, I'm sorry, but when we say there's no such thing as the self, and we say that free will or conscious will is an illusion, we're painting ourselves into a corner of irrelevance. And we're losing our, our ability to talk to culture in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. So then we write all these analytic things about how they should behave and what they shouldn't eat. And, you know, they, fine. We act, we act as though the point is to not suffer. Right? We, we, mm. we, and I'm not saying we should suffer. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at is by our, because of our commitment to a correspondence frame, which challenges the reality of lived experience, mm. um, we've, made ourselves kind of conceptually irrelevant. Mm. And so what I've been doing for five, seven years or more, um, I've been going to comic cons and doing panels. Huh? Right. Really? So, right. um, I Tell just me about that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. What a, I, that actually, I'm aware of that history. That's an interesting <laughs> turn in this conversation. Oh, I Why love this stuff. 
Okay. So yeah. I went to uh, WonderCon in California a couple months ago and did some panels. One was um, Zombies, Blips, and the Apocalypse, Why Write About Disruptions? Okay. And what I did was I invited five scholars, creators, to tell five-minute versions of their favorite disruptive tale. Hmm. And then the, uh, talk to the audience about why those get written. Mm -hmm. And the complexity uh, here, when I organize one of these panels, what I do is I tell every panelist, you're going to get about three to four minutes of uninterrupted time to tell your perspective. Okay. So be prepared. Mm -hmm. And then we'll riff on that as a group. And then we'll move down the row. And then, you know, with the last 20 minutes or so, we'll talk to the audience. But what I have found is by getting these experts, these different forms of expertise together, talking about the human condition, using the medium, medium of pop culture as the interface, wow. we're able to create these, these conversational spaces that don't get created often in classrooms because we're talking about analytic stuff in textbooks and we're labeling everything and we're not forefronting live life. Love. All of these stories forefront live life and what's at stake. And the audience, because we do that, difficult, nuanced work for the first half hour, the audience ends up asking questions they would have never gotten gotten to the point of asking because of a context we've created. So um, that's done, so cool. I just uh, um, just sort of no, randomly, uh, you know, one of the things I um, I do, here's an example, which maybe which actually is somewhat parallel. So I, I just showed I teach in personality class. Yeah. Okay? So I just showed a clip of Seinfeld of George and right. Jerry. And it's actually a, a little clips on the switch. And Jerry wants to date one roommate and switch over. And there's this sort of iconic scene if you like Seinfeld and, right. and this and all this stuff. And I have them watch this and I was like, and then I said, like, well, tell me about their personalities. Okay. And then they go, the students go around and they and they're almost always sort of like, well, I think, you know, George is kind of neurotic. So they give me the big five, you know. Yes. And and so they're trying to extract patterns. And then, you know, it's like, and then I'm like, is that what personality is, you know, really? Okay. Um, and then from a Utah perspective, so what you want to do is you want to get the ontology of human behavior. You don't want to break this up into behavior and mental processes that you then model. Right. I say, what do you see? Right. Okay. Humans actually doing. Uh, and then it contextualizes what we're doing as investing creatures that are influencing yes. each other and justifying what we're doing. Okay? Yes. And it says, if you don't understand personality, you understand the general framing and right. then the idiosyncratic differences across maybe big five. We can talk about why you might use some of those languages, yeah. but you don't try to just extract big five um, essentialist categories yep. and then utilize that to describe before you contextualize what's actually happening in lived experience. And so yep. that's the message. And I just blogged, happened to, because we were talking about it yesterday. I was like, yeah, I'll throw up a blog on that. No, so anyway, cool. it was just sort of like, hey, observe human mental behavior yep. in lived life and yep. then see what you're, you know, see how you understand it. Um, yep. So that's essentially what I'm hearing as at least a, an organizing frame of reference. And that's got me really excited. That's fascinating to bring experts. No, I, it's um, kind of my modus operandi right now. Um, it's a way for me to manifest wild systems theory in, in, in the daily lives of, of people who um, came to talk about and celebrate pop culture. And I'll be honest with you, uh, if you look at some of the narratives in popular culture the last 10 years, last 20 years, uh, they're better than most psychological theories because they just show you, right? Um, and um, so... Uh, right, I begin some of my psychology 
if you really want to understand humans, you probably should first go to read Shakespeare rather than listen to me. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, yes. So, yeah. Life is more poetry uh, than, you know, more poetry than yeah. analysis. Right. And yeah. um, that's so. Okay. Um, so, so is there then, are there, do you, are you, are there, is that giving traction? I mean, people going around going like, oh my gosh, wild systems theory. I mean, not that I would have heard of it, but I, it's sort of like, right. you know, so do you feel that. Or so because so I'm going to say no in the okay. sense that I don't go to a comic con and introduce myself as that's a wild system wild thing. systems guy I actually you need, you need a character <laughs> well I introduce myself as uh, Sir Zombie Scotty okay well there you go um, um, that has to do with the fact that early in my life I loved pop culture I loved TV I loved movies I played Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And all these highly imaginative, creative spaces that I got to be in with other people. And then when I got to college and hadn't really been a good student as a high schooler, I really had to intentionally reorganize how I was doing things so I could do well in academia. And that meant that I spent time doing more of that than those other things. Mm -hmm. And that just tended, you know, look, I still watched stranger things all by myself i still watched you know all the great sci-fi by myself ghost in the shell all that stuff but it was by myself right because mm. i had other things to do during the work day and uh, then about seven years ago i went to wizard con in chicago uh with a friend dr eric wesselman and we came across this desk a guy named dr travis langley dr travis langley uh, was advertising a book he'd written on Batman psychology. Okay. And uh, so we looked at it, we talked to him, and he said, we're doing a panel on The Walking Dead if you want to watch that. Huh. So I went to the panel on The Walking Dead, and what are they doing? They're talking about trauma, right? And they're bringing psychology to pop culture, which, by the way, had taken the time to write good stories and present. Right. Pop culture had gotten to the level where it was what I like to call, uh, um, it was... Uh, discipline relevant right it was complex and nuanced enough that we could actually lean into it as, as vignettes and examples hmm. and uh we saw that panel we said damn this is pretty authentic and we went back to his table and said how do we how do we participate well he was doing a book on star trek so we wrote a uh, book chapter on star trek psychology yeah. and since then i've probably written 10 of these chapters for about six really? or seven different books wow. um and it's really become a powerful, you know, I don't have to call it wild systems theory. I can just be wild right. systems theory. Right. And then if someone wants to go to a bar or something and talk more about this stuff, um, I don't know how long, I, what did it take before I labeled, before I sort of whipped out the label wild systems theory. Gotcha. That label is almost more important for academics because right. it, it has, I have to place wild systems theory within the world of information processing theory, yep. complex yep. systems theory. <laughs> but um, so uh, it's, 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 it's taken up more and more of my, my identity. It's extremely generative to the point where about two years ago, fall of 20, I started this monthly Zoom Comic-Con panel thing called oh. ReggieCon. Really? Uh, our, our, our mascot is a red bird and his name is Reggie. Okay. So what we do is we get on Zoom for an hour and a half uh -huh. and we celebrate whatever History Heritage Month is culturally celebrated at that time. So LBGTQ History Month, huh. wow. um, Black, Black History Month, whatever. We find a comic book, a graphic novel, a, a movie, something that is well known we we sort of assign that as a viewing or a reading and right. then i get a bunch of 
scholars who know something about that content area and we get together we 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 have complex nuanced post-dinner adult conversations that are highly intersectional extremely give and take a lot of fun a lot of intensity and what we're trying to model is how to be in these highly intersectional spaces wow. um one thing that our culture lacks right now is how do we be intersectional together yep yep how do yep. we and be and the problem that we're challenged we're facing is that facebook and youtube which i'm on and i use so i'm not trying to be a facebook twitter hater mm-hmm. the thing is or in and uh, youtube as well when these when these snippets of information dominate the way we think we lack our ability to engage in nuance so it has to be modeled people have to see that we can disagree about the meaning of black panther and go back and forth on it. and this is all this is all slow burn stuff right uh, and one of the things that i think we need to start training people who are interested in change including us right yeah um is we we haven't had a conversation about what constitutes success for our efforts Mm. and because of that and because we've been indoctrinated into an individualist culture Mm -hmm. we translate activist success with the persuasion of individual minds yeah and that's not that's a surefire way to burn out and become Mm. cynical yeah so I try to teach students in particular is that the job of an activist is to be a persistent voice of a value in culture. Oh. That's your job. Like these oh. videos that you're making, that's oh. the job, right? Oh. Get this stuff in the world of ideas so that it's not that any not everybody's going to come say, whoa, man, wild system, sign me up, <laughs> dude. It's they know it's there. And if they ever are in a space in their lives where they might remember that and it's a place they can go, uh, that's how that's how real change happens culturally anyway mm-hmm. um, it's not like everybody gets persuaded and does what someone says in, totally. in most cases totally. so it, it's it's huh. burn work yep. and um, it's it's very much wild systems right change yeah. the context you live in if you want to live in a different context so um, huh. yeah. that's, that's glorious well, no, I got no, to no. talk about that. That's so cool. And, uh, Thank you. No, that's uh, absolutely well. I mean, I, I mean, this has certainly been my own um, you know, I fall deep into a rabbit hole analytically. And then um, now I, my journey was very similar to yours, only I stayed with the clinician. I mean, I worked with suicide right. attempters for a long time and, um, you know, and lived in that. But there's always this bridge between, okay, there's this huge analytic thing. It's, a, it's a, there's first is the joy of trying to discover stuff, put puzzle pieces together, yes. find and like-minded scholars and, yes. you know, realizing meanings is there all along. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, and and then there's also this whole wait a minute how do i apply and then quite frankly the how do i apply it like with a degree i have right now i have this weird sense of wow there's a bit of urgency and actually also alienation and opportunity there's this weird you know flux dynamic you know phase shift flux dynamics what is the right way to position myself um when is it you know there's slow burn i mean i use the metaphor of the garden all the time i want to create my local garden imagine that fractally across a wide variety of different domains oscillate between what my attention is across that fractal and depending on you know mood and events of the day and the own shit that's happening in my life <laughs> and what i'm producing you know in yeah. terms of entropy but all yeah. of that's the way i've kind of tried to navigate at least the what feels yeah. 
at times confusing, uh, you know, and at least, uh, at least in terms of like, wow, there's a lot of variables and how to kind of be in a particular way that, wow. you know, is true to myself and, and feels like in terms of the long arc of history, well aligned. Um, but well, anyway, those are just some one of my good friends, Dr. Harold Ottmanspacher, uh, when I was perhaps um, uh, engaging in a bit of self-pity about the <laughs> lack of success of wild systems, mm -hmm. you know, he said, hey, man, you know, only dead fish swim with the current. <laughs> and um, the the things that, you know, you mentioned Shakespeare earlier. My favorite line is to be or not to be. Suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. What I try to tell students is, man, those slings and arrows are a lot easier to bear if you're moving forward with an idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? totally. But if you don't have something to push into the world, they and then you find yourself Twittered and Facebook to death. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, it's about, um, first of all, I don't treat individuals as um, average cases of humanness. Nice. I, 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 I appreciate and love diversity. Um, and what that means is uh, so does natural selection, right? Oh. Uh, evolution, I'm going to argue, I might get in trouble, doesn't tend to really select individual organisms that select species, right? Oh. And how they collectively organize context in ways that enhance their sustainment. Mm -hmm. Well, the maximally coherent way, the maximally coherent way to do that is have as, to have as much tolerable difference in the group as mm. possible mm -hmm. to be able to handle any degrees of freedom that come your way. Nice. And this is our, this is a strength. This is not um, something, it's not a weakness at all. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to bring that idea, that way of thinking into my student's life, into my colleague's life, into my family's life. Um, uh, it just, it, 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 it feels like mission. And um, once I came to the conclusion, and I, I didn't come to this conclusion myself, talk thinking to myself, I came to this conclusion when I was asked by a young high school student, what do I do if I can't persuade anyone? Mm. And my answer to him was, that's not your job. Right. Your job is to be a persistent presence in culture. Okay, that's my job, to be a persistent presence in culture. Right. For all those young people, and maybe not so young people, who've lived a life of wonder and maybe felt alone throughout most mm. of it, yep. right? When I, when my 18, 20-something, 25-something students see me talking about Full Meta Alchemist and Avatar The Last Airbender <laughs> and they lose they lose their mind what they don't understand is those are just good stories that were told in their time right right shakespeare were great that was all great stories told in his time mm -hmm. and you know they think why would an old guy be watching cartoons well mm. no i'm watching a fantastic story and mm. um a story that's inherently holist um that i actually you know would use in a class to mm -hmm. show them what it's like to live holistically so mm. hmm. That's beautiful. No, um, thanks. Yeah, no, that's really nourishing. Uh, and I think grounding is the same, you know. Yes. And it's easy for me because I love cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not saying, go ahead. Everyone's got I, I just, I've uh, always loved cell animation, man. I mean, when mm -hmm. I watched Princess Mononoke in 99, it was about a year after it came out. Mm -hmm. I watched that thing three times in two days. I've probably watched it 30 times since then. It's, for me, the best damn story ever told. 
and it's animated and it's animated with cell animation and it's all about the curse of being which is we are entropy systems and the best we can do is cultivate self-respect in others and by doing that we cultivate self-respect in ourselves. i mean um so it's not about being right or wrong Um, right it's it's a different space right well uh again i'll just make a little link to you talk and then maybe we can start to see if there's anything else that we didn't cover that you hope to get to and then see where this leaves us so um one of the things in the system is it tracks our our what's called the human relationship system okay uh and this is basically the way we're mapping the self-other space uh and what it says is is that we're tracking at its sort of fundamental contextualizing organizing variable is what's called social influence and relational value the rvsi line social influence is the instrumental capacity to move people around relational value is the felt sense of being known seen known and valued by important others yes um and fundamentally it argues that actually our economic system and much of our modern system splits and then grossly overvalues social influence yeah (laughs) and undermines the actual grounding which is the felt sense of seen known and valued relational value yeah Um, and it really argues that if we're going to find a core variable that to network ourselves together and in proper relation it's maximizing the felt sense of relational value across the network so when i hear you say hey respect other respect self well value other value self in a particular kind of way in a core foundational way uh, that that lines with very much with the psychic architecture as i map it in, in relationship to our relational world what what's so satisfying to, to hear you say all that is i've never put that series of words together that way mm-hmm. and yet we're talking about the same phenomenon right and that's because you've climbed a different rhetorical mountain than i have and nonetheless we're still trying to wrap trying to bring uh, words to a space so that we can share it with other people in ways that that we hope will you know produce change and i i i not only is it the best we can do um there's there's truly is joy in in living that way um so hearing this this foundational connection that you mentioned i in the my most recent paper which isn't published yet um i talked about uh the foundational othering of living systems Mm. and because i'm a wild systems theorist that means i look at organisms as self-organizing energy transformation systems that lets me look at the cell wall of of a single cell as emergent from the work of the single cell Mm -hmm. and um what that means is that the work of the cell necessarily defines the other what mm. what comes in what doesn't okay. so being a living system is engaging in foundational othering mm-hmm. right and, mm. and it's this foundational othering that our brains do mm-hmm. that allows us to separate experiences due to me versus experiences due to the world Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have uh, schizophrenia as one of those diagnosable situations where individuals who are diagnosed, for example, find it easier to tickle themselves mm-hmm. uh, than, than non-diagnosed. And that's because they're not tracking their memory planning relationships the way non-diagnosed people do. Mm-hmm. So they experience this as coming from an other. 
Yeah, right. That's a, that's a fascinating finding. I always thought it was cool. it, it's it's amazing, <laughs> and it, and it's also a similar explanation of why they're vulnerable to hallucinations and delusions. They're generating these phenomena themselves, but they don't experience themselves. They don't track it with memories and planning like non-diagnosed people do. Mm-hmm. So they experience it as being from the other. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I'm sitting here and I can say a phrase like "I'm looking at my computer" uh, reveals the othering that I necessarily do to be an entity that I can label as I. Now, all that matters um, because in our phenomenology, in our felt experience, we don't experiencing, we don't experience the actual work generating the othering. Mm. And this is why people have said the external world is a given, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. we don't feel our brains generating the other, we just feel other. Yes. And for me, correspondence philosophy is a commitment to taking phenomenology as is experienced, accepting the othering, and mm. not holding ourselves accountable for its generation. Okay. And these are the kind of subject-object divides that the idealists were trying to overcome. Mm. They didn't know what they we know about brain dynamics and self-sustaining systems now, that, that othering is a necessary condition of being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we move into, you know, human relationships and managing how we other, yep. right? And mm-hmm. we necessarily do other. You're you, I'm me. I don't feel my brain generating those distinctions, mm-hmm. um, yet I'd argue my brain is generating uh, those distinctions. And so I can choose to deny that I have anything to do with uh, the sense of you and I, or I can say, hmm, the reason I'm experiencing a difference has everything to do with me. Mm. And therefore, then I become undeniably forever responsible for everything associated with my othering. Mm. Right. I don't get to say, yeah, that person deserved to be in prison because they're bad. Mm. Right. I don't get to say non-relational type things. Why well, uh-huh. you can say it, but then you're just incoherent. Right. Mm. Um, and mm. I think this leads to mm. ways of, 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 of being with others that that recognizes our contribution to their otherness. Mm-hmm. Their otherness doesn't exist in them. The objects don't exist independent of a self. Mm-hmm. Um, this system necessarily and naturally others in order to be. I know that's mm-hmm. very abstract, but it mm-hmm. gives me mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. to look at being, being with others mm-hmm. as what democracy was intended to be, I'd argue, mm-hmm. which is uh, the ability to negotiate and compromise. Mm-hmm. as opposed to being right or wrong in some abstract mm. way where I get to pretend like I had nothing to do with what's right. Mm. It's just out there, a continuous right. category. Huh. And I'll say one last thing on that. By buying into the idea that I have nothing to do with my othering, I can say things like, yeah, criminals, they belong in jail because they broke the law. Mm-hmm. And okay. we treat the law as an other, that has uh-huh. nothing to do with who we are, <laughs> despite uh-huh. the fact we create the law, uh-huh. right? And what that does is allow it allows me because I can believe that someone is has, uh-huh. that someone is responsible for breaking some Kantian a priori moral category or something like uh-huh. that. The suffering they experience because of their incarceration has nothing to do with me. And then you recognize that rhetorics of othering, that rhetorics of ontologies of the external moral code, or all this. 
What it does is allow suffering to occur because I exist that I can claim doesn't exist because of me, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the war on drugs, right? It has nothing to do with me not wanting certain things. It has everything to do with those people breaking a law. Um, and that rhetoric is, it's, it, it allows people to not feel bad when they're at bed at night because of all the people who are suffering in certain ways because of the way they live their life. So, um, Wild Systems isn't there for people who want to walk around happy with a smile in, <laughs> in a traditional just bought a new object kind of way, right? It's uh -huh. there for people who can't help themselves and who, oh. um, who can't help themselves but feel this way and need to find a way. What I'm doing is I'm offering them a way to experience that as a strength. Huh. right here's here's some there's a strength that you have you may not have known it you, huh. and uh, I can we can work to cultivate it and um, so yeah correct yeah no that's a really um, I mean it, the word that comes to mind sort of is love and agape sense actually as I sort of at least in terms of it it would be one way of framing sort of the holistic appreciation of the network and our interdependence yes. is that yeah fair exactly. at some level for yeah exactly and it's easy to buy into other rings that allow me to ignore the suffering of others and um i'm not saying anything new right this, this is centuries old buddhism uh it's simply restating it in a 21st century western context right and um and that's all I ask from a coherence perspective that's all philosophy ever really can be right um so uh so i accept that and i don't need to be right Love <laughs> just right. Well, coherent. well me it's just meaning is and here it is <laughs> no my, my when i went when i met wayne hershberger and i was probably 20 he said you want to know what experience is this is it and he he pointed outside of himself and mm. i loved it i didn't yeah. know what the hell it meant but no one had <laughs> talked to me like that right and when I'm in a classroom full of students or if I happen to be a bar and people want to talk about this stuff, they've not heard it before. Uh -huh. They've not been presented this way of conceptualizing themselves before. And there are a lot of people out there that are looking for different ways to experience themselves. And um, I'm, I'm flattered right. and delighted when I have the opportunity to blather on as you've let hey. me do for, hey, no, it's been <laughs> for a while here. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, and from my little angle, it's certainly syncing up with John. We have a meaning and mental health crisis. Our system is in a chaotic, fragmented pluralism. And there are multiple ways where a coherentist, systemic, natural, wild, agape yeah. orienting way of being in the world sounds like just about right. <laughs> Dude, that was another mic drop there, man. That was the, exactly oh. the case. So, you know, exactly. hey, man, I, I really, sorry, I really appreciate you coming and sharing your perspective and uh, your embodied wisdom. And uh, it was mm. very nourishing uh, for me at multiple levels. It really was fascinating. Well, vice versa. Thanks so much for the uh, invitation. Um, just to let you know, this logo behind me, you it's not a good logo because it, you can't see what it says. It says <laughs> Dark Loops Productions. Okay. So it's a it's a channel on YouTube where I usually use pop culture. Uh, and get a bunch of experts from different disciplines to talk like we just have uh -huh. using that pop culture phenomenon as a medium and the conversations go on for an hour and a half 
And, you know, people watch usually watch the thir first 30, 40 mm -hmm. seconds mm -hmm. in Jet. Uh, but that's not that's not the point. The point is, is that they're out there in the world. Right. And yeah. uh, anyone who wants to watch it can, mm -hmm. which is a world we didn't live in 20 years ago. So, and, and dark um, loops. Can you uh, cue us in on that? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll tell you exactly where it came from. Uh, the first thing <clears throat> I, by the way, I'm just learning all bootstrapping my tech skills as I've done mm -hmm. this. But mm -hmm. in March of uh, 20, I started my first podcast. It was uh, for season three of Westworld. Ah, Oh, okay. And um, I had an Italian colleague, Dr. Tommaso Bertoloni, was going to a philosopher, an embodied philosopher, was going to be on the crew, mm -hmm. and we were discussing names. And he said, "Why don't we call ourselves Dark Loops because of Westworld and the, okay. know, they're in their loops?" Yeah. And the more I thought about it, the more I I loved it. Well, he didn't end up appearing on the panel. He's done mm -hmm. other stuff later, <laughs> but Dark Loops um, is a direct appeal to the Dark Loops we put we live in. Uh, and it's also kind of an appeal to a 70s vinyl vibe, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, when I was a young kid, I, any Saturday I could, I'd go out to the record store and just flip through album covers and just mm. be fascinated with the artwork and mm -hmm. never had money to buy one, but I just loved that space. And so consistent with the idea of Zombie Scotty, it's sort of, you know, bringing back, I guess, the childish nostalgia, the sure. wonder of mm -hmm. things I encountered when I was younger, things that also saved me when I was oh. younger. Um, you know, uh, oh. good lyrics, uh, oh. good right, good novels will introduce you to ways of being that may not be available in your oh. you know, immediate world. Mm -hmm. So Dark Loops is there as a tribute to 70s vinyl, mm -hmm. as well as to a tribute to the Dark Loops we tend to live in. And uh, my daughter made the logo, so she's Perfect. got now it's very multi-scale. Mm -hmm. Very <laughs> illuminating, if you'll allow the pun. No, please. <laughs> I got it, absolutely. <laughs> All righty, friend. That's beautiful. I uh, really appreciate it. Again, let me echo, you know, all your hard work, all your vision, all your embodiment of wisdom. It's, it's a really cool thing to see. I'm really glad we got a chance to share this conversation with a few people that go more than 30 seconds in. <laughs> Thank you very much, Greg. Very much Absolutely. appreciated. Thank you. Bye-bye.